up and start this brand new series within the book of Luke for us. Let's give him a warm welcome. Awesome. It's great to see you all today. And I just want to give a huge shout out to those of you who are worshiping at at all of our campuses, whether you're over in Greenbush today or up in Saratoga or at Half Moon, uh, where Debbie and I had the privilege of being last weekend, or whether you're at Latham, we're so, so glad that you've chosen to be in worship. You know, uh, I love good questions. (laughs) In fact, I, I think you can tell a lot about a person by the questions they ask. When I'm interviewing someone, perhaps for a staff position or some sort of leadership position, I certainly am interested in how they answer my questions. But you know what? I'm even more interested in the questions they bring to me because that tells me a whole lot about how they think, where their mind is, what kinds of things they're interested in. When you think about it, life is largely about how we answer certain key questions, is it not? Some of you listening today, you're single right now, and and some of you would like to be married one day. Maybe not right now, but one day, whenever Mr. or Miss Wright comes along. But you know, whom you choose to marry is one of those huge questions of life, and it's going to impact your life more than just about anything else. And then, of course, there's those questions about vocation that are so huge. What am I going to spend my time doing? What will I train for? Uh, What will I do as my vocation day by day, week after week? It's another one of those enormously important questions because let's face it nobody wants to spend their life doing something that they do not enjoy or even worse that they believe is pretty meaningless and then there's all sorts of other questions in life like who's gonna win the World Series right I I know the Boston Red Sox fans are really pumped and really excited right now Because their team has been playing great and, wow, the longest World Series game in history. Are you kidding me? And so they're waiting with bated breath to see how their team does. That's another kind of question we ask. Some questions are rather provocative. For instance, a question I'm asking is this. And all of you folks in Saratoga, you're going to appreciate this question. I've been asking the question... In my life, this is a deep one now. Get ready. Will I ever meet a person that doesn't like Mike Adams? All right? Now, for those of you who may not know, all the Saratoga people are all over this right now because they know and love Pastor Mike Adams, our campus pastor at Saratoga. But I got to tell you, I, do you realize that Pastor Mike is in the Guinness Book of World Records? He really is. He is in the Guinness Book of World Records as the most likable pastor in the universe. I mean that, folks. I have never met a person that doesn't like Mike. It's unbelievable. And so I keep wondering, will it ever happen? All sorts of questions. I was in a weird mood this week, and so I Googled, I Googled 
what are the most asked questions in the world? You might be interested. Among the top 10 are things like, what time is it? How do I register to vote? How do I tie a tie? Seriously, these are in the top 10 questions around the world that are asked on Google. How to lose weight, and believe it or not, how many ounces are in a cup? So obviously, some questions are much more important than others. But if you were to ask me today, Pastor X, what is the most important question I'll ever grapple with? I would say it would be this. For you to decide in your life, for yourself, who is Jesus? There's even a, a card in your bulletin today that asks that very question. And you might, you might want to take that and do some thinking out loud, as it were, thinking on paper as you maybe muse and ponder that provocative question, who is Jesus? We'd, we'd love to dialogue with you about that if you're wondering and on a journey about who he is. But here's the reason I say that's probably... In fact, I'm convinced it is the most important question you'll ever ask and answer because it will impact your life more than any other single thing. It'll determine how you spend your days, what your values are going to be, how you steward this one and only life, what you spend your time doing. It's just going to greatly impact your life day after day. And so my thoughts today, as we continue in this series in the Gospel of Luke, my thoughts are on who is Jesus? And if that's a question you've been pondering, maybe you would even consider yourself a believer, but you still want to get a better handle on who Jesus is, today is your day. I want you to listen closely, because today's passage gives three snapshots of who Jesus is. We're going to look at each one. Each one gives a little different angle on it, but they all go together in describe, helping describe for us who Jesus truly is. So with that said, let's jump right in. The first scene, we see this. Jesus is portrayed as a king with great humility. I'm picking this story up in Luke 19 with verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. In other words, this colt is going to be wild. He's not going to be comfortable with somebody riding on him because he hasn't been broken yet, never been ridden on. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, and this was sort of a passcode, if you will. This is kind of the secret password here. This phrase, the Lord needs it. And so this had been arranged in advance. When these people came and when they said, why do you need it? Why are you untying this colt? The Lord needs it. They go, ah, get it. Good deal. That's the secret passcode. We typically refer to this passage that we're looking at today as the triumphal entry 
of Christ as he enters into Jerusalem for his final week, what is called his week of passion, where he goes through so many critical experiences leading right up to his death on a cross. But I want you to better understand what the political and cultural climate was in the city at this time. Most of the people, listen, who knew anything about Jesus at all were beginning to believe that maybe he was the anointed one. Code word, he was the Messiah, the one the prophets had told them about long ago. They believed that perhaps Jesus was the one. And they were excited about that because they believed he would be a political Messiah. They wanted to get these stinking foreigners off their backs and out of their pockets. They were tired of paying Roman taxes. And the Romans ruled them with somewhat of an iron fist. They wanted Jesus to change all of that. So that's what they're thinking at this moment, those who know about it. But at the very same time, Jesus' enemies were escalating their plans and their efforts to get rid of Jesus. They literally were planning to kill him. They were going to wait until after the Passover feast was finished, but they were laying specific plans for doing Jesus in. So in other words, he had a price on his head. He was a marked man. Now, if that were you, what would you do? I think I'd fly under the radar. I think I would move only at night. I would be very secretive and stealthy in my movements. I would watch my every step, but not Jesus. He is so courageous and fearless. What we see in this passage, and he goes into Jerusalem in broad daylight. When his enemies and everyone else would see it. And also, he does some things here that force the hand of his enemies. There's great symbolism that you can see. He's sending a message loudly and clearly to anyone who has ears to hear. And the people familiar with the Jewish scriptures in the Old Covenant would immediately recognize this symbolism. For instance... Zechariah the prophet had prophesied hundreds of years before. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. This is talking about the Messiah. This was prophetic language here that Zechariah was giving. Your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you need to understand this is not really that unusual. There are hundreds of prophecies like this in the Old Testament that were later fulfilled in the New Testament time. It's just one of the many indications of the veracity, of the trustworthiness of the Bible, God's Word. We can trust it. What God says will happen will happen. And here's just one of many examples. So get the picture. Jesus is like the grand marshal here. He's deliberately doing this in public. One of the commentaries that we're reading for this series, William Barclay's commentary, he says, it is a breathtaking thing 
to think of a man with such a price upon his head. An outlaw deliberately riding into a city in such a way that every eye was fixed upon him. It is impossible to exaggerate the sheer courage of Jesus. But I find it rather courageous and almost bizarre that he was riding on a colt that had never been broken or ridden on before. If you've been around horses, you know that's amazing. I'll never forget a sign that was at a dude ranch out west. And the sign read, it was one of these places where you can go and ride horses. It said, we have horses for all kinds of people. For fast people, fast horses. For slow people, slow horses. For heavy people, big horses. For, you know, little people, skinny horses. For people who've never ridden before, horses that have never been ridden before. How is Jesus riding on this unbroken colt? It's simply an indication of his sovereignty and authority over all creation, even the animals. And the disciples found the colt just as Jesus had predicted. Verse 35 says, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. Now, why this donkey why this colt the foal of a donkey why that animal well it's interesting not only is it fulfilling prophecy but riding on a colt the foal of a donkey was a very symbolic thing for instance Solomon when he became king rode on a donkey it was a statement of I'm coming in peace I desire a peaceful kingdom If a king, on the other hand, came riding on a horse, like a stallion, that would be symbolic of war. But Jesus here is humbly riding on a donkey. And again, the people who understood the scriptures, boy, that fired their imagination. It's happening. Look, it's happening. Just like Zechariah said, just like the prophets of old told us it would. What a courageous act. Verse 36 reads, as he went along, People spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, this would be recognized by a Jewish person as a typical Jewish kingly coronation kind of service but jesus is a new kind of king his coronation is not being preceded by lavish parties and opulence and photo ops his coronation is preceded by humble living and patient training of his disciples and i remind you that his coronation ultimately wouldn't happen until heaven the only crown he would really get down here is a crown of thorns as he died for you and for me on the cross so that my sins and your sins could be forgiven but this parade into Jerusalem is getting more raucous as the people are shouting and his enemies 
can't take it. In fact, they say, verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciple. Why would they say that? Because they thought this was blasphemy. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of God. So they were saying, look, quit. Tell him to quit calling you Messiah. You're letting them call you king. Tell them to hush up. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Jesus permitted their praise because they were telling the truth. Now, friend, if you're really considering this question, who is Jesus? I tell you, one of the things you need to consider early and often are the claims that Jesus made. That's one of the things that all of us have to grapple with. They're pretty outlandish if they were not true. Imagine if I stood up here today and I said, hey, before Christopher Columbus came to America, I was alive. You go, dude, what are you smoking, man? What? Are you, you're kidding. You, something's wrong with you. Or if I stood up here and said, look, I've never sinned. Honestly, I'm perfect. I've never made a mistake. I've never broken one of God's laws in all of my life. You'd go, man, you're crazy. We can disprove that. And you'd go and get some friends of mine. You'd go and get some church members. You'd, you'd go back and talk to some of my old buddies on the basketball team. You'd talk to some of my old go- girlfriends. And boy, they'd come in and go, yeah, I can testify. He's a sinner, all right. He's a sinner. He's not telling the truth right now. Or what if I said to you, look, if you've seen me, you've seen God, because I and the Father are one. You go, is he losing it? I mean, is he two egg rolls short of a poo-poo platter? What is wrong with this guy? His claims are getting more crazy by the minute. Or if I were to say, look, go ahead and kill me. Do it. Just kill me. And I will rise again in three days. You go, now I'm totally convinced that you're ready for the psych ward. But Jesus said, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days I will raise it up again. And it happened just as he said it would. So what I'm saying to you is that if you are on an authentic quest for truth, you got to grapple with the claims of Jesus. He made claims that from the mouth of anyone else would be ridiculous, and yet he backed up every one of them. Jesus was no normal person. So if you're considering the question of who he is, you've got to wrestle with the fact that either he's the son of God or he's the greatest con man the world has ever seen. There's no middle ground. And being a Christian is coming to the point of affirming, I believe Jesus is who he said he was. And not only that, I believe that when he talked about authority, having all of it in heaven and on earth, I believe that that is not only true, I think that has ramifications for my life today. 
I believe that means he can give me the peace that I'm searching for, the meaning in life, a purpose for living. He can calm my anxieties. He can yoke up with me, and his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. So what have we said so far? Although Jesus has all authority, he humbly invites you to submit your life to him. But I will say one final word. In my experience, he won't force that. In my observation of many, many people through the years in my own life, he doesn't put his gospel gun to your head and go, I'm going to make you follow me. You're going to jump when I say jump like a puppet on a string. He respects that free will he gave you. And as he stirs up faith in you, he asks you to make an authentic choice to say yes to his kingship. So Jesus is a king with great humility. The second scene here, though, is very interesting. And again, all of this simply gives different snapshots of who Jesus is. Jesus, secondly, is portrayed as a savior with great compassion. Let's read on in the story. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. He's weeping. Now get the juxtaposition of all of this. There's this raucous, cheerful, joyous celebration going on. And then Jesus is weeping in anguish. What's up? I mean, if you saw a political candidate who had run a good race and worked hard and finally got the victory, can you imagine him or her weeping in anguish at the celebration ceremony? In anguish? No. It would be all joy and celebration. Or can you imagine a, a, a winning pitcher in the World Series just breaking down and weeping in anguish? No, he's going to be celebrating and slapping high fives. So why is Jesus weeping here? The answer is simple. Listen, as God, as God, Jesus could look down the telescope of time and see a time when Jerusalem would go through severe trials. He goes on and talks about it. Verse 43, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, friends, this is easy to prove historically. Some 35 roughly years after Jesus made this statement, in the late 60s A.D., the emperor Vespasian's son came and he besieged Jerusalem. Titus was his name. And he came with hordes of Roman soldiers. They circled the city. They cut off all supplies, no water, no food. The siege lasted 143 days until finally they stormed the gates and leveled the city. 600,000 Jewish people were massacred. 
That's what Jesus was weeping about. 600,000. That's more than in any other single incident except the Holocaust in World War II for Jewish people to be killed. And Jesus saw that happening 35 years at least before it happened. Wow. So while these people lined the streets and waved their palm branches and shouted, Hail to the King, Jesus knew that they were going to re really reject him. And in fact, in just a matter of five days or so, it would be true that he who came to his own, his own did not receive him. Now again, I say very personally to you now, wherever you are in your journey, when you reject Jesus, not only as your king, the king with great humility, but as savior of your life, a savior with tremendous compassion, when you do that, it breaks, it breaks his heart. J. Wallace Hamilton tells of a preacher's son who was very rebellious. And it didn't matter what his mom or dad told him, what they tried, how much they prayed for him, or how much they tried to encourage him or even rebuke him at times. He was just determined to spin out of control. Alcohol and drugs were consuming his life. He was making one bad choice after another. And finally, one night in the wee hours of the morning, about 2.30 in the morning, he came stumbling in, just a total wreck, clothes disheveled, been out all night. He came through the door, stumbled to his room, and now that he was home, the father was able to fall asleep. But about a half hour later, the father woke up and his wife wasn't beside him. The boy's mom was, where was she? And so he went to the boy's room and there he saw his wife, the young man's mom, wiping his sweating brow as he was passed out on the bed. And with tears streaming down her face, she said, he just won't let me love him when he's awake. Will you let God love you? When you do something that you know is wrong and outside of God's will, when you do something that you know is against his desire and his will for you, what is your picture of God at that moment? Do you picture God turning away in disgust? Oh, there you go again. There's no hope for you. You're just a loser. You can never change. I'm so ashamed of you. Are those the voices that play in your head? I think a much more accurate picture of God would be to see him on your bedside weeping because he knows the future. You see, his heart is broken when we persist in a pathway of destruction and sin going against his design. His heart is broken because he sees where that's going. Just like he saw where the city of Jerusalem was headed. And he sees down the telescope of time and he says, I see your life. And I see how that, that racism is going to poison relationships and devalue people. Deal with that. He says, I see how that greed is going to ultimately consume you and cause you to go against your own values. Please deal with that. He says, I see how that materialism in your life is going to make you work un 
unbelievable hours and neglect your family, please see it for the idol that it is and deal with it. He says, I see how that addiction is going to devastate your body. Please don't go there. You don't like what you're going to become. And he weeps. He weeps over us because he loves us so much whenever we're living a life contrary to his will. And I believe, as surely as I'm standing here today, that God, as he looks into your future, sees a time coming in your life. And here's one of the reasons he wants to draw near to you today. He sees a time coming when there will be trials that you cannot navigate without his strength. You need him in your life today. And you must grapple with this question, who is Jesus? Who is he to you? Is he king? Is he savior? Jesus didn't just weep over Jerusalem, friends. When we are in rebellion, he weeps over us too. But there's one final snapshot that I'm convinced will shock some of us when you really see it. It's a snapshot that's, that's not really popular today. And here's the one I'm talking about. As we read on here, Jesus is portrayed as a judge with capacity for anger over sin and injustice. Now, perhaps you grew up in a household where you never saw anger constructively expressed. Maybe in the household where you grew up, anger was always out of control. It was always vented inappropriately, and so that's all you know or understand. If that's the case, what we're about to read here, I especially want you to tune in. If you believe that there's no way that love and anger appropriately expressed can go together. The very next day after the triumphal entry and after his weeping over Jerusalem, the very next day, Jesus goes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he was really upset by what he saw. Because in the court there, called the court of the Gentiles, there were money tables set up to convert foreign currency into the temple currency. You see, there were all kinds of currencies in Jerusalem at the time, and you had to have the kosher currency when you paid your temple tax. It had to be the exact currency that was required and you could only exchange for it there at the temple and the fee was exorbitant and there were also animals being sold for special sacrifices because the unscrupulous priest made sure that the sacrificial animals the people brought never quite met the standard and so they were rejected and you had to buy one of these exorbitantly priced temple flock animals one of the commentators this week said that conservatively speaking, if you convert for inflation, put it into dollars, these religious leaders had in today's currency, adjusted for inflation, about a $5 million a year profit going just by the sale of these animals. So the atmosphere is sort of a cross between a carnival and a stockyard auction. There are foul smells, there are angry voices, unscrupulous people, 
all in a place that was originally intended to be a house of prayer and worship. So Jesus, in his righteous anger, decides to clean house. Verse 45. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now the other gospels give even more detail about the intensity of Jesus' emotion as he kicks open the cages, as the cattle and the sheep go stampeding across the courtyard, as the pigeons and the doves flutter out of their cages. And he says, as he puts together a couple of Old Testament scriptures, it's written, my house is to be a house of prayer for all peoples, a house of worship, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, if you're trying to figure out this question, who is Jesus, you need to consider this. If somebody comes in and busts up a multi-million dollar business like this, you tell me, what's going to happen next? Some bouncer's going to show them to the door, right? But no one dared lay a hand on Jesus. No one dared to oppose him. He exuded so much authority and confidence, they fled in anger against his efforts against injustice. Does that surprise you? If you've not read the Bible, it probably does. Because most non-biblical, erroneous depictions I hear these days of Jesus paint him as sort of a pale Galilean, sort of anemic looking, really weak and kind of wimpy. Pretty much a space cadet, kind of otherworldly look on his face, who kind of roamed around the countryside of Palestine picking lilies and spinning out weird sounding parables. Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, it is so important today that we emphasize Jesus' love and compassion and warmth. Absolutely. But we've got to, if we're going to get an accurate picture, we've got to see his capacity for righteous anger and wrath. He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, a symbol of peace. Revelation 19 tells us when he comes back, he's riding on a white stallion with a sword out of his mouth to slay those who have been in rebellion against him and refused to do his will. You can't leave that out. I'm telling you, you cannot leave that part out if you're going to have an accurate biblical picture of who Jesus is. Paul writes in Romans 11, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So what's Christianity really all about? What is this Jesus thing and this whole thing about Jesus dying on a cross? Why did that happen? Here it is, here it is in a nutshell. You see, God has given us laws. He's shown us his will, and he didn't stutter when he did. He made it clear. 
And yet every one of us, starting with Rex Keener, with you, with everyone who's ever lived, has broken God's laws and gone against his will and fallen short of his standards. But God did something about that. That's why Jesus came. He came on a rescue mission to die on the cross an atoning death. That means he took my place. I ought to have died for my sins. I ought to have been punished, but Jesus took my place and yours and died for the sin of the world. And now he says, if you put your trust in me and my finished work on the cross, I will forgive all of your sin, adopt you into my family. I'll literally come into your life and begin to change you from the inside out. I love questions. But I'm telling you today, friend, you will never grapple with a more important question than who is Jesus. According to this text, he's a king with great humility. He's a savior with great compassion. And he's a judge with capacity for anger against sin and injustice. I close with this. If you're grappling with what is Jesus to you, I would leave you with this quote from the great Oxford scholar, C.S. Lewis. I think he puts it as well as I've ever heard. C.S. Lewis said, a man who's merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool, You can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he never intended to. If you're really on a search, honestly, I think you're on the horns of a dilemma. Because Jesus kind of pushes us into a corner, doesn't he? He says, look, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said, you've got to decide. Decide if I'm crazy. Decide if I'm a crook or a con man. Decide if I'm Christ. But the decision is yours. Father, I ask that in these moments as we transition and continue in worship and a spirit of worship, I pray for all those who are in the crucible of decision right now, in the valley of decision, as the prophet said, and really grappling with who you are and what that means for them. May this be a moment of decision. May they humbly, broken by your spirit, Scales gone, eyes clear, mind understanding, faith stirred up. May they open their heart and life to you right now. And friend, if that's you, I would simply invite you to do that in this moment. Say, Jesus, I give my life to you. Please save me. Be my king. Be my king. I invite you to take my life and use it for your purposes. In Jesus' name.
Amen.